This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, uh, my name is Nan Enstad. I'm a professor of community and environmental sociology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am so honored today to be in conversation with Dave Rodiger. Um, Dave is a professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Kansas. He is one of the most compelling uh, thinkers around issues of class, race, and political organizing writing in the U.S. today. I hear a dog. Is that your dog, Dave? Okay. <laughs> he has a PhD in history from Northwestern. He's taught at Northwestern University of Missouri, of Minnesota, and Illinois. And though he's been a writer and a professor through his adult life, as far as uh, as far as I know, at least, my sense is that he really brings an organizer's imagination to the writing of history and also to political commentary. So uh, Dave is known uh, best for his work on the working class and for being a founder of what became called Whiteness Studies. Um, and I guess the way I'd put it is that there was never a time when Dave did not make race and the crisis of white supremacy central to his inquiries about class and working people's lives. He's written seven books, including um, these titles give you a sense of, of, of um, his work, Our Own Time, The Wages of Whiteness, How Race Survived U.S. History, and Towards the Abolition of Whiteness, Colored White, and Working Towards Whiteness, and now from Haymarket, The Sinking Middle Class, Political Debt, Political History of Debt, Misery, and The Drift to the Right. So, um, Dave, thanks so much for um, having this conversation today. I'm so excited to be talking to you about this amazing book. Thank you, Nan. Yeah. So, let's just start by um, me asking you, how did you come to write this? First of all, I'm so excited to be talking with you about this. I got to pick my dream uh, intellectual to <laughs> uh, to do this. So I'm really excited that we get to talk. Um, this book took an enormous amount of time to write, uh, mostly because I'd work on it and then I put it aside for something else. So I actually got the idea in 2008 when Obama was very much talking about saving the middle class. And uh, I then in 2012, noted it again. That was the election that was most given over to saving the middle class talk, the Obama uh, Romney uh, election. So I was I was uh, uh, intrigued by that, and I I sort of had all of the mistakes in my mind that I try to correct in the book. I thought this must have been a kind of a timeless thing, and it turned out it really in politics only began with with Bill Clinton, and then I started putting the project aside because I'd always have some other book that had a deadline. I, one was on the 150th anniversary of the self-emancipation of slaves. And I thought, well, that has to come out 
around that an- anniversary. And I thought, too, that the uh, this emphasis on the middle class uh, would be always present. I could wait another election and another election. And now I'm not quite so sure about that. I think mm. there's some evidence that we might be seeing an end to the effectiveness of this kind of political rhetoric, although people don't know what to replace it with at all. So those kind of reasons about what was in the news and uh, Obama uh, had a lot to do with it. A little bit, I uh, am a labor studies person, and this is kind of a perennial, why don't U.S. workers call themselves working class? And now, tragically, why don't U.S. unions call themselves working (laughs) class? Uh, uh, These right to work referenda uh, in state after state are being fought as battles to save the the middle class. And there's not much talk of the working class that comes from our unions either. And that's a complicated set of questions that we can maybe uh, get into later. But I was speaking at a Midwestern University of Labor Studies conference when I was thinking about this book. And I complained off to the side in my talk about the ways that unions were using middle class. And as soon as I did it, I was upset with myself because I thought I did it too sharply and too offensively. And then afterwards, a woman came up who edited the state labor paper, and she said she had a search and replace software that every time that she used uh, working class, it changed the terminology to middle class. And I thought, wow, I'm really on to something here. And then lastly, the the book was compelling to me because uh, I was trying to figure out my own family. My mom was turning 90 and now has turned 100 and uh, school teacher and trying to think about my dad, who was a uh, son of industrial quarry workers and who became a clerk. And my mom, who's a, who was a school teacher and, and thought of herself in different ways in terms of class. And then my own. I don't know how you think about this, but my own class status uh, is vexing mm-hmm. to me as as I try to to think about it. And just one tack on, I uh, I was looking for something a little different. You read that list of titles and half of them had whiteness in it. And I, I wanted to do something different. I think about you going from uh, young women's dreams, uh, young workers' dreams to cigarettes. And I, I just needed to make that kind of a jump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um well, you re- you referred to this like um, kind of key surprise that I had when I read the book is that even though you know we both lived through <laughs> this transition, this I, we were just surrounded by these appeals to the middle class and to saving the middle class and middle class the United States as a middle class nation, and uh, I also thought that that just went back in time. And you show in the book that it's it is since Bill Clinton, it's the last thirty years. Um, and so I really want to dig into that, but first I want to ask you, you know, is the U S a middle-class nation? I mean, like, can, can we kind of dig into that first? Yeah, I think that, that one of the points of the book is to try to, uh, contest the idea of the United States as a middle-class nation. And partly to say that almost nobody in the 19th century which is what I actually study mostly is the 19th century. Almost nobody called themselves middle class. Now, we could retrospectively go back and confer that category uh, on them. 
but uh, massive people who were farmers and merchants called themselves the producing classes and uh, called themselves free labor, uh, but they didn't use the term middle class. And when you look at the usages that can be uh, gotten from digitized books, when middle class was used in the United States, people were talking about Europe. Uh, and so there's this fascination with the European middle classes and European theoreticians. There's a new book that comes out tomorrow by Matteo Battistini, the Italian scholar, comes out in English tomorrow in which he shows how much middle class was a European phenomenon and not a United Statesian uh, phenomenon. So the United States wasn't until really the 1930s a self-consciously middle class nation when elites began to press for uh, uh, middle class as an alternative to working class. And when there was enough unionization for some working people to think of themselves as achieving middle class uh, status. And then overwhelmingly, the popularity of the term is during the Cold War when it's used in a kind of deeply gendered way to describe what the suburban uh, way of life was in the United States and to contrast it with uh, life in the Soviet Union. Uh, but even then, it doesn't make its way into presidential politics, as you say, until 30 years ago. It's Clinton that uh, pioneers that. Yeah, that was super interesting to me and thinking about, you know, the kitchen debates and I teach that, you know, Khrushchev and and Nixon with the with, you know, saying, look at these washing machines, look at our American housewives, your wife, your your housewives aren't even housewives, they have to go out and work. And and we have the middle class as opposed to the socialist or communist working class. Right. And so. Like, uh, does that legacy live on in the 1990s when it starts to enter into political discourse or is it a totally new thing? Well, it's new in terms of the actual way that gender is lived in the middle class in the United States, mm. because it, at about that point, uh, it's women in middle uh, and upper middle income families that are more likely to go out into the labor force. So there's this kind of irony that the conservative discourse around middle class and suburbs and washing machines is uh, based on the kind of Betty Friedan feminine mystique misery of women isolated in the homes. And then a whole different set of miseries from overwork uh, come into by the 1990s or so that uh, so-called middle-class women are, are experiencing. So it's, I think there's a break. Uh, and I also think that maybe there was a tendency to, it was so much of a Cold War term, so much of a pro-United States term that I think there was a hesitancy to use it in a partisan way. It's interesting that Clinton can do this as the Soviet Union is winding mm. winding down. So then you can make these direct party appeals based on who knows what's best for the middle class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's um, fascinating. Um, you also talk about, uh, you know, kind of the idea of American exceptionalism with this idea and um, the denial of, I guess this is going back even earlier, right? A, a sort of a denial of socialism. Like, is there is there socialism in the United States? And and kind of uh, trumpeting the United States as a middle class nation to deny 
So I guess what I'm kind of wanting to ask you about is there's there's like what class really what people are really experiencing in terms of their economic position. And you just said, you know, women are women are are going into the workforce in great numbers. That's about class as it really exists, you know, the economic relationship. But there's also such a strong thread in your book about middle classness as this ideology right as it that's been doing ideological work in the in the United States you know since the maybe the interwar period right in in saying social this isn't a socialist nation and guarding against you know the inroads that um communism was making around the world um yeah, yeah. yeah. so when uh, robert lind and uh helen lind write middletown the great sociological uh, work of the Midwestern Muncie, Indiana uh, in the 20s, they don't feel compelled to talk about the middle class at all. And in fact, they, they, they're they like very brief mentions. And But then in the 30s, when they come back for Middletown in transition, they realize that they have to now talk about a middle class. And they say mostly as ideology. And their long quote about it is a uh, a quote from the local paper that says, we're not like Spain with a left and a civil war. We're not the CIO. The future of the United States is the future of our solid uh, middle class. So just after that, Fortune magazine uh, runs this lavish special issue about the United States as a middle class nation in 1940. Wow. And I think that if you were to date kind of in popular culture, when middle class uh, commands the discourse, it's that special issue. And they have to play a lot of games in order to have polling data that shows that people are identifying massively as middle class. But there's it's kind of a combination of ideology and the fact that more and more people are uh saying that that as, and who knows why i mean it's partly because some unionized workers have actually seen their standards of life uh increase mm-hmm. that the depression has eased for some people for some working people it's a badge of uh gonna get ahead a badge of uh a desire for uh social mobility and uh so i think for whatever I don't I think it doesn't do to see middle class as purely ideology mm-hmm. that people don't buy into at all but just have foisted on them right, but it's right. a combination of the two yeah yeah um right sometimes it seems like in the United States the part of the problem is that the work that working class just means industrial working class factory factory workers a certain very narrow image of factory workers in the popular imagination so um, you talk about the interesting case of nurses and teachers um, and where do they fit into this um, picture of of class and middle class and working class yeah I think about this in terms of your state of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin uprising and how you know what a leading role, that teachers had in a lot of those uh, struggles. So you have a group that a lot of people, uh, labor scholars were still calling middle class. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of teachers probably called themselves uh, middle class, uh, nurses the the same, but now they're the leading edge of the labor movement in in a certain way. And so how do we, how do we reckon with, with that. And um, 
I think part of the lesson is to not get too hung up on terminology. Uh, my mom was a, a school teacher in uh, the NEA uh, professional organization for many, many years and very much bought into its ideal of professionalism and we're uh, this professional organization and disdained the American Federation of Teachers as a as a union and we don't need a union. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden the AFT began to win strikes in the in Southern Illinois and get a lot better contracts. And my mom became a strike leader and a union militant. Uh, and it wasn't that she got convinced that she was working class. I think mm-hmm. she probably would have still thought about herself in about the same way in class terms. Yeah. And working class really wasn't available to her uh, as a term. Uh, but in action, she became this trade unionist who was interested in in fighting for working class things. So I think it's pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's not that we should try to get rid of middle classness or like don't use that word like like we're going to get to kind of what the kind of toxic impact of this word has been in politics. Um, But you you don't argue that we should try to get away from the term or that people like your mom should should just confess that they're working class. Right. Or (laughs) or change their idea. Their their. Yeah. Um, but instead, you start you you develop this idea that I thought was very interesting of middle class misery, and I, I always start feeling better when people start talking about misery. To be perfectly honest, because <laughs> it's like, yes, finally, let's talk. Let's 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 like like lay it out. Be honest. Um, and so, what are the components of middle class misery? Well, first of all, why do we need to talk about middle class misery? And and then, what is it for you? Well, I think that middle class misery gets us to the material reasons that people identify as middle class. I'd said that I don't think that it's only ideology. It's only uh, what we used to call false consciousness on the Marxist left. I think that there are actually in several ways material reasons that middle class people uh, think of themselves in 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 that way. So one of them would be debt. the middle class has historically had access to credit that um, you mentioned industrial workers that industrial workers mostly didn't have. So the middle class has a longer and deeper experience with debt, at least debt owned to owed, owed to uh, banks. Um, uh, another would be overwork because uh Lots of job categories that people talk about as middle class, particularly uh, managerial and and office, uh, are salaried and uh, don't fit neatly under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, you could exact more and more hours. We heard during the pandemic of mm. and still hear of some of the hedge funds working people eighty or ninety hours a week. Well, if they were having to pay time and a half on the large salaries that those people command, they wouldn't be doing that. So overwork tends to be a problem that affects everybody, but is particularly felt uh, inside the so-called middle class. And then lastly, and the one that became most interesting to me is that it's middle class uh, workers, it's office uh, workers, uh, sales workers, who are most early and thoroughly surveilled 
on the job and judged on the basis of their personality. So at least from the 20s forward, you have this tendency to uh, watch people in office. So you could say that Bartleby the Scrivener, Melville's great uh, short story about clerical uh, work already in the 1850s, the boss had all these elaborate ways to watch and judge workers. But certainly by the 1920s, you had these metrics that people were being judged, getting laid off, getting raises, getting ahead based on their personalities. And that was different from industrial work where Mm -hmm. Frederick Taylor and scientific management, Taylor cared if you could lift 47 tons of pig iron in a day or you couldn't. The production, uh, the physical work was what he was after. Ford cared if you could keep up with the assembly line or if the parts mounted up at your station on the assembly line. But for the uh, office worker, and particularly for the uh, female office worker, uh, appearance, personality, smile, all sorts of other things mattered as much or more. And this is an instance in which the way that the middle class got managed has now become the way that people in what we tend to think of as working class jobs also get managed. So if you work at McDonald's now, your personality is judged whether you work in the front or in the back. Mm -hmm. You're you're still getting judged on on that basis. And that is not better than being judged on picking up pig iron. It's just different. And it's a different kind of misery that people uh, have to experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I definitely uh, feel like um, my, you know, personality uh, with teaching is being kind of monitored and, and there's differences, right, between men, male professors and female professors, uh, white male professors and professors of color um, are getting policed in different ways by the institution in terms of kind of what kind of personality you're supposed to be bringing to the marketplace. So I think that's really an interesting thing to say, to to cast that as a class experience, I think is a really, a middle-class experience is a really important kind of naming, right, of that. So that when people think about themselves as middle class, we tend to think of them as a, being on a perch and wanting to maintain that perch, uh, whether it's their home value yeah. or their or their job. Or, and what I'm trying to argue in terms of this emphasis on the production of misery is that even when they're on that perch, people are miserable. Yeah. And one of the reasons <laughs> that they're so panicked about losing that is that they're uh, experiencing even the good times as as miserable. Right. And there's a sense of, you know, for, well, we we both are very familiar with the problems of contingent workers in universities and the decline of tenure and now people working for, uh, you know, you can't call it middle class what people are working for in universities, but they're still subjected, as you say, to these kinds of um, policing, this kinds of this kind of surveillance. Um, and there's a sense of I mean, there's sort of this besieged sense of like, just hang on because, you know, this is, this could all go away, right? All of it could go away. So if you, if you don't have tenure, 
you're supposed to be scrambling, you know, to try to get a better position. If you do have tenure, just, just, you know, shut up and (laughs) hope that you can keep it. Um, So it's, I, I think the seeing it as part of a, uh, you know, part of the class structure is, is really important. And what it really brought out to me um, is how much we don't talk about, we do just talk about middle-class privilege. Like that's a, that's a phrase that rolls off my tongue really easily. Middle-class privilege. We talk about, well, what are our middle-class privileges? And not to say we shouldn't have that conversation. We need to have that conversation as well. Right. But how, how has it affected us? And, and can you talk a little bit more about the, the fear of falling that has kind of dominated the political discourse and why this is, um, how do you, do you want to get away from, this is something, this is a genuine question that I, I wasn't sure. Do you want to get us to get away from the language of kind of a fear of falling for the middle class and rather talk about like what are the material conditions of debt and overwork and surveillance that are structuring the relationship? Well, I think you need to do that. We need to do both. I think we need to, to talk about um, university labor is a good example. I I think, I think we need to talk about the miseries that uh, tenured faculty have as they see universities um, dwindle. And I think that they, that we much more urgently need to talk about the plight of students and of, uh, casualized adjunctified, uh, labor in universities at the, at the same time. So, uh, but that is, as you say, a conversation that is only the barest of beginnings of that. And I don't know if you've, been in professional organizations where we try to have the uh, this, this discussion, uh, and even the best of the ones that I've been at, it ends up being very tacked on to a conference that's already so expensive and so far away that the people who are teaching seven classes in four places couldn't possibly get to that conference. So there's this little layer of people who manage for some reason or another to do that, to pursue that conversation. It's great that they do, but we're not having anything like something that's commensurate with the, with the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Possibly at the labor and working class history association conference in May and at Rutgers. That's, I think that they're going to really try to put that front and center, but that's not a major professional organization, right? It's a, it's a minor professional organization. Yeah. And, and committed to, to exactly that, uh, that problem. But I, I, I said earlier that I think it's, it's then hard to know, uh, what, uh, academic workers who have tenure, how they, we ought to think of ourselves in class, Mm -hmm. in class terms, uh, for the longest part of my career, I still made less money than the people who I knew that went into the skilled trades and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then all of a sudden universities kind of committed themselves to having a few well-paid people mm-hmm. and, uh, screwing everybody else. And so, uh, as I moved into that position, it's a, it's a very, a difficult thing for me to to come to grips with what I think my own class position is. I I kind of wonder what how you would answer that. 
oh, it's horrible in Wisconsin to watch, you know, my friends at branch campuses, you know, I'm at the, I'm at the flagship campus. And so there, there was a, after, (laughs) you know, there's been various moments to try to, to retain faculty. There've been various moments that people started poaching UW faculty after they destroyed tenure um, was one of them. Um, and so my my salary has continued to go up, um, but uh, you know, at the branch campuses, that's what they're doing. They're like they're dra- draining the life out of the branch campuses. People are grossly underpaid, even if they have tenure, right? And they're cutting. You know, they're you know they're cutting. They're they're increasing the the you know um, numbers of students. Um, at UW Madison, and then they're telling the people at the branch campuses that they <laughs> have enrollment problems, and so they need to, ha- to have more cuts. You know, so it's not that there aren't cuts at UW Madison; there are, and you know, there's all kinds of problems. But um, I look to the branch campuses and see they're destroying what was once an amazing system that spread across the state. It still is, but you know, yeah. it was an amazing system that served working people, and the and the and those those are the places where working people. And people of color go. They they're 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 there at UW Madison, but they're really um, out in the branch campuses. So yeah, my class position. I just you know I just always feel like apologize. <laughs> just apologize, you know, um, uh, because what of the destruction that I that I see. Yeah. yeah. But this this segmentation, I think that you're talking about is is why middle class is such an unwieldy term to organize anything political about yeah. in that election in 2012 that I mentioned earlier, uh, where uh, both candidates, Romney and Obama, had exactly the same definition of middle class. They said middle class is anybody who makes uh, less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year a year. And that was 92% of the population. (laughs) So you had, you know, 20% of the population was poor. And Obama said, well, we don't have to talk about the poor, or we are talking about the poor when we talk about middle class, because they're aspiring to be uh, middle class. But you have all of these different uh, people, uh, different contradictory locations within that 92%. So you're faced really with just the same problem as trying to build a political movement in general. You haven't given any focus to uh, uh, how you would go about that. I do think that debt and overwork and uh, alienation of personality could give some kind of focus uh, across some of these Lines, or at least we could be generous in uh, realizing that there are good reasons that working people call themselves middle class mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I have a feeling we're going to circle back to some of this, um, but I, I really want to talk about Stanley Greenberg. Mm. Um, for me, this part of the book really blew me away, um, was really the... Uh, the heart of the book. And so I want to ask you, um, who who was Stanley Greenberg for people who that doesn't just immediately jump to mind why he's yeah. so important, you know, and what, why, why is he such a central person in your book? Yeah, George Stephanopoulos, the uh, TV uh, personality now, but was a staffer for Obama, calls Stanley Greenberg the, the most important progressive in the last 30 
years. And yet, as you say, I think very few people could even say who he is. He's sort of the quieter equivalent of James Carville, uh, who people do know, who's somebody who is a strategist, uh, is in Greensburg, in Greenberg's case, a pollster, comes out of the left. He was a, a, a new transformed by the new left briefly, uh, was a very active uh, left uh, activist in South Africa for a while on behalf of the ANC. But then at a certain point, uh, becomes the person in the Democratic Party who's tasked with trying to figure out how to, as he puts it, win back those Reagan Democrats who had been New Deal voters mm. and who um, then became Reagan voters. Mm. And so the party and the UAW union uh, send Greenberg to Macomb County, Michigan, uh, actually in the 80s. Uh, to try to figure out what went wrong. Macomb County had been this hugely uh, working class, democratic, almost all white uh, county. And Greenberg goes there and uh, tries to figure out why people are now voting for conservative Republicans. Mm -hmm. And he does that not by talking about them in a union hall, to them in a union hall or talking about their work lives, but by talking in private spaces in all white and originally all male groups and all Reagan voters. He wasn't interested in the people who still uh, didn't make that transition. And then he collects their grievances and brings them back to the Democratic Party and says, this is what we have to pay attention to. And their grievances are almost all about black people from Detroit. Mm -hmm. He says at one point, I think that people in Macomb County believe they're middle class. For them, the content of that is that they're not black and they're not from from Detroit. Mm -hmm. So there's this emphasis on crime. There's this emphasis on getting rid of integration of schools. There's a little bit of emphasis on abortion. It's a Catholic uh, uh, county. But the lesson that Greenberg draws is we have to be seen as the party that hears this. And so instead of addressing the disaffection of largely auto working and tank producing uh, people in Macomb County through the unions or through uh, opposing NAFTA or through any of those possi possibilities, uh, this is a neoliberal moment when that's not on the table. And so what becomes instead is to listen to racism and to go back then and to tell um, black voters and black political organizations that they can't go any further because to do that would just be to perpetually uh, elect the Reagans and the Bushes of the world. This is a long stretch of all Republican presidents, mm -hmm. with the exception of the brief little Carter uh, interim. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people uh, buy uh, Greenberg's analysis, and it becomes a kind of a pedagogy that says you can't have anything for the unions. You can't have anything on trade policy. Those are impossibilities in this uh, competitive global uh, landscape. You can't have anything that challenges austerity. But what you can be listened to is to get rid of welfare as we know it, uh, to uh, three strikes and you're out, effective death penalty, uh, all of those things are possible. So those ideas just kind of lie around for a while. And then it's Clinton as this long shot 
Arkansas politician in the primaries who hooks up with Greenberg in 92 and begins to uh, to implement those those ideas and to, to figure out a way to take that knowledge that Greenberg has built up in Macomb County. And he keeps going back. He still is going back to Macomb County and doing exactly the same kind of politics uh, that he that he did in the in the 80s. But it's a way to kind of rein in anything that might be progressive that would happen inside the uh, Democratic Party. When he was commissioned to do this by the UAW and the Michigan Democratic Party, he tended to talk in terms of winning back the working class, mm-hmm. meaning the white working class. Mm-hmm. When he publishes his book on the triumph of, of Clinton, he calls that book middle class dreams. So he introduces this kind of or reflects this kind of constant confusion between the middle class and what people more rarely refer to as the white working class. And those two terms are kind of in Greenberg and way beyond Greenberg used interchangeably. Now that when we say middle class, we understand that we mean white middle class. And when we say white working class, we're trying to be even more fearful of what kind of evil lurks and mm. backwardness lurks in that uh, formation without any kind of counter tendency to say, well, how would we actually create a, a political coalition uh, between uh, working people, black and white? Yeah, I um, you use a, a, a phrase that I am forever <laughs> using now. You talk about white lore um, in relationship to this. And <laughs> I really want to talk about this because when I when I read this about Greenberg and that he started out in the left, you know, how did this happen? How did this happen that and and it's even called um, deracializing the Democratic Party, Party. Yeah. right? To, to collect an entirely white sample <laughs> is deracializing. That's interesting in, in itself. But, uh, you know, can we talk about how Greenberg went from somebody who was really shaped within, I mean, he's got a complex history, but he was shaped within civil rights and anti-apartheid. And yet he ends up doing this uh, kind of the first white lore, it was probably not the first, but a very important white lore um, uh, study. Yeah, I'm, a part of it is he gets uh, denied tenure as a young political scientist at Yale uh, and then thinks, oh, well, I can go back to South Africa and work in the movement there, which he probably liked better than Yale Uh on his own reporting anyway, but he gets caught uh, speaking in favor of divestment from South Africa in South Africa and his relationships with the Ford Foundation are compromised. And so he he kind of doesn't have a job, mm. but he has all of this uh, connection to being the person who knows about workers. And so it's a little bit logical. He starts doing local work for Democrats like Chris Dodd, and he becomes famous because he um, gets Joe Lieberman elected uh, running as a Democrat, but to the right of his Republican uh, opponent. And so he's good at this. And and Mm. he, uh, for a long time, talks about it as doing the work of of, um, winning back the working class to the Democratic Party. And it's Mm. this idea that the working class is white. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've 
we've faced that problem as labor historians at, yeah. at certain junctures, that it's easy for people to believe that when they talk about the, the working class, their image is a white male worker. And that's that was a step from that to mm-hmm. these encounter, what I'm calling white lore encounter groups, in which he assembled people to say things that they knew he would hear, he would mm-hmm. listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk about the, now we have tons of these, especially since 2016, right? Um, you talk about J.D. Vance, and from left and right, right? We yeah, have J.D. Yeah. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy, Nancy Eisenberg's White Trash, Arlie Russell Hostile, Strangers in Their Own Land, Jane Joan Williams, White Working Class, that are all about like kind of this gaze inward to find out you know, what are, let's listen to the racists, as you said, you know, and, um, and I've really struggled with these. Uh, So I really want to ask you, like, um, just to, and maybe, maybe you've, you've answered it, but I I feel like we could dig in a little bit more. Um, Like, it's not that and, and obviously, some of these are really well-intentioned. Like, we need to understand these voters, right? And it's not that they're exaggerating white supremacy, right? right? right. It's not that it's not true. It's not that it's not that bad. Uh, it really is a, a, a massive problem, right? So what is the problem with with this white lore? Can you just talk a little bit more about it? Well, I think there's a problem within electoral politics that it presents, and that is that it takes off the table or reflects the fact that uh, uh, neoliberal moment took off the table, the possibility of actually trying to figure out what a program that united people and uh, did things in the name of racial justice that lots of uh, white workers might not uh champion, but if, but they could get something else, uh, out of it. I think that ceased to be a problem, uh, after really the rainbow coalition, uh, within, uh, electoral, uh, politics. So I think within electoral politics, when we try to understand how is it that everything just drifts to the right Mm -hmm. in electoral, uh, politics, I think that this, um, idea that you have to placate not only the worst uh, elements in the white working class, but the worst elements in their worst, most private moments. Yes. You don't even uh, try to figure out what might uh, right. win those uh-huh. those people. But then also, I think that we're so consumed by electoral politics and it's mm-hmm. there's really not a month now that we're between elections uh, so that uh, we in our social movements end up taking uh, the the language of the white working class and the middle class that maybe makes some sense or has some traction in an electoral campaign. I don't think so, but you know, you could argue about that. And we think that way in our, in our social movements. Mm-hmm. So uh, you'll remember the Amazon drive in Alabama that was defeated, uh, uh, I guess, a year and a half ago. Okay. Now, the, the last rally for that drive, it was Killer Mike, the rapper from Atlanta, and Bernie Sanders speaking to the workers. And it was a kind of a small and 
somewhat disappointing crowd. But Killer Mike gave this great talk about black-white interracial unity in, in history, working-class unity. And then Sanders gave also a very good talk and then got to the crescendo of that talk and said, we, we need to finally uh, realize and support what makes America great, pause, the middle class. And so, you know, everything in that moment cried out for talking about grievances at work. And it actually was a political mistake to talk about uh, the grievances of the middle class in that moment, because it was the company that was appealing to uh, poor workers uh, as saying our $14 an hour is going to get you into the into the yeah. middle class. And and, uh, you know, and so it, it made for a very kind of private family-based decision-making rather than collective uh, decision-making. So, and you see that again and again, you at the labor notes conference that just occurred, uh, uh, Sean O'Brien, the new president of the Teamsters did exactly the same thing. You, you know, he got to a wonderful point in his speech and then said, and who are we fighting for? We're fighting for the middle, the middle class. And that I am against. I mean, I'm, I'm all for, taking people where they're at and realizing that there are material reasons that they have grievances as, as middle-class people, but for uh, working class leaders, socialist leaders to encourage people to uh, define their struggles as middle-class struggles. I think that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. This is what I meant in my intro that I think you have an organizer's imagination and a historian's toolbox, um, which I think is uh, pretty, pretty great, um, makes for pretty great reading. Uh, but <clears throat> I wanted to get into, you have some um, great material in the book about uh, Macomb County and how that study was set up. Um, and you did talk a little bit about that, but um, it, it's, it's like, uh, kind of a hammer finds nails sort of situation, yeah. right? Um, and so if you're um, an organizer, right, and you go into a setting, you don't, um, you know, you, you don't uh, kind of create a category that fixes the thing that you're trying to study or you shouldn't, right? right so right. so I, I don't know if you've got more on that, um, but I, it feels like there's some way that this white lore is creating the category that they then discover, right? And it's very reifying of a phenomenon. And it doesn't show what's emergent, what's residual. Like it doesn't show, it's very stat. It feels very static. Yeah. And this county had uh, already voted for George Wallace and had, you know, it, it was a very democratic county, maybe the most democratic county in the United States in the early 60s. But by McGovern and Wallace, and even in 68, it's uh, reacting to the Detroit rebellion and to school integration and, and 300,000 people moved basically from Detroit, uh, white homeowners mm -hmm. from Detroit to Macomb County. So to pick Macomb County is already a political choice. You're, you're choosing to learn about the worst kind of, uh, pointed, uh, posed, uh, dangers of working class racism that you can possibly access. And then to say, 
well, we know we have all these UAW union halls here and we could hold the meetings there. We could hold meetings on the shop floor. We could hold meetings in some neutral place, but to hold all white meetings in a Holiday Inn that's itself going to be in all white places. And then very long meetings in which people are encouraged to pour out their their grievances. So at one point, uh, uh, Greenberg gives them some material by Bobby Kennedy and and somebody says, uh, well, no wonder they shot him. I can understand that some kind of plea for interracialism. And Greenberg, who kind of came into politics as a Bobby Kennedy uh, supporter, says, we have to understand this. We have to listen to this. But he doesn't then say we have to develop a strategy that wins people away from this. He says we have to be aware of where they are. There's a great moment at the end of that of the Clinton campaign where Clinton is trying to put distance between him himself and Jesse Jackson. And he thinks he's going to lose votes because people identify the Democratic Party with with Jesse Jackson. And so kind of famously, uh, Clinton goes to a Jackson event and criticizes the rapper Sister Soldier uh, for comments that she's made about the Los Angeles uh, rebellion and picks a fight not just with Sister Soldier, but with Jackson for having her perform mm. at the uh, Rainbow Coalition mm. event. And uh, Jackson very astutely says, after this is over, he says, I had a feeling that Clinton was talking to somebody who wasn't even in the room. <laughs> and yeah. it, he was talking to this kind of encounter group in Macomb County. And we then learn that it's really... Um, uh, Greenberg, who suggested this stuff, that, you know, so it's like, yeah, you're talking about kind of self-fulfilling prophecies. That's right. just how it, it works. It is the the hammer find and then yeah. the nail. Yeah. Yeah. And what a fateful moment of 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 choice for the Democratic Party. Right. You've got the Rainbow Coalition <laughs> and yeah. you've got uh Macomb County that you can and you and you can choose between which one, which of these potentialities do you want to nurture and align yourself with? And right. Um, So that's really, really compelling. Um, I just want to say if there's. uh, Oh, yeah, I guess if there are any audience questions, um, uh, I guess there is one. Great. Um, how do unions stand a chance if both parties have vigorously pursued the neoliberal free trade agreements over the past 30 years? NAFTA, GATT, TPP. Yeah. Question. I mean, I think that, mm. that that is that the the Clinton moment and the transition to this white working class slash middle class uh, politics and the emptiness, the empty promises of that form of, of, of politics uh, was set by the fact that neither uh, party felt themselves in a position to or constituted to uh, present an alternative to austerity and, and uh, neoliberalism. So uh, and the unions weren't in a position to do that either. So that the union's response was not to try to figure out what new ground can be opened up to win Macomb County workers back to a union slash Democratic Party agenda, but rather to say, how do we persuade people, given that there's not a material payoff uh, 
legislative payoff? How do we persuade people? And we do that by uh, uh, halting the gains of the civil rights movement, basically, and showing ourselves as being able to to present that kind of a halt. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that it is uh, a situation in which uh, once you have the uh, pace of capitalist globalization and of uh, austerity in terms of government spending are what Ruthie Gilmore calls the anti-state state. It wasn't really austerity so much as uh, defense spending and uh, incarceration yeah. uh, spending and police uh, spending, but not social uh, spending. Once you have that in place, uh, it is a, a difficult situation uh, for uh, the unions, for working people. Uh, but I, I don't think that that can be our starting point. I think we still have to be able to say uh, we're going to do what we can in elections or some people will have different views about how to proceed in in the electoral realm. But we have to be able to say we also don't only do our politics in the electoral realm. And we are starting to see a little bit of a uptick in uh, trade union mobilizations now. And uh, as the labor movement changes and grows, it might be possible to challenge some of these possible policies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um I want to I want to pull on another one of these questions. Are great. Um, <clears throat> so, um, can you talk a little bit more about why why uh, what exactly is lost um, when unions accept the idea that they're defenders of the middle class or somebody like Bernie, um, you know, uses that language? Is it just that they're ceding ground, or is there more to it? And this is there is there is an element of your book that I think hasn't come out yet about this. So. Love to hear this. Yeah, um, I I think that I understood uh, why uh, Sanders, in one of his pre-campaign books early on, talked about the middle class in the title as a kind of a catch phrase. I don't think it was a good idea, but I I understood it, and I can see people saying, "Well, a certain percentage of the working class." considers itself middle class and therefore you just meet them where they're at. But now that's not really true. The polls show that there's only about a 6% difference in the number of people who think of themselves as middle class and think of Mm. themselves as working class in the, in the United States. There's not really a a material reason for that kind of, uh, of capitulation, but also to, um, to evoke the middle class, like in that strike situation uh, in Alabama, is to evoke a kind of a discourse that's very much about fear, falling debt, family, uh, sometimes uh, male provider breadwinnerism, uh, and so we're uh, we're implicated in a. a discourse that actually takes us away from what's been the organizing strategy of the campaign, which mm-hmm. is has been kind of about grievances at work and uh, networks at work and, and uh, uh, the be- reigning in the behavior of bosses, uh, occupational safety and, and health. All of those things are working class 
demands, particularly in a warehouse and in uh, transport. And so I, I think it's a, a case where uh, I'm not a person who thinks that language solves things. I, I don't think that in general, uh, we move forward by first changing the language and then changing the behavior. Mm-hmm. But I think we also shouldn't stick to a language that works against us. And mm-hmm. so I, I do think that uh, the more that the uh, labor movement can talk about a working class, the better off that we are. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I've been really struck by how much the white is sort of a silent partner so often in the way that middle class discourse gets uh, marshaled and saving. We need to save the middle class, that there's like uh, that, that, that ha- the, the, the left has not been successful, right, at pulling that. Maybe Obama was, um, but yeah. not since then, right? At pulling that towards, a, a, um, and I don't know if I'd call Obama left, but the Democrats um, haven't been that successful. And the left certainly hasn't been successful at pulling that towards um, left priorities, um, right. it seems. Yeah. And so- the, the, the more recent emphasis on white working class, uh, a lot of the, Stanley Greenberg, a lot of the analysts, um, of the Trump victory in 2016 and then the near miss of the far right in uh, 2020, uh, a lot of that is is now couched in terms of the white working class and mm-hmm. blaming the white working class. Joan Williams, who you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of it's a grab bag of one sentence. It's white working class. And the next sentence, it's the middle class. It's white working class. It's middle class. Sometimes it's just working class. And we're supposed to know that she's talking about the, the white working class. And she talks in the preface to the book about the fact that, well, I wanted to call it this, but my publisher said, no, it would be more arresting to call it this. And so the, the terms don't actually have any analytic weight, yeah. but to now talk about white working class in a period when there really is a strong tendency toward white nationalism mm-hmm. is itself an irresponsible uh, yeah. thing to do. We really need to pull those apart and to get away from thinking about a white uh, working class. And whenever we talk about a white working class historically, and it's been pretty rare in the United States, but when it is talked about, all the emphasis falls on white, all the policy decisions fall on white and yeah. working class doesn't, uh, gets the short end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what I really feel like the book explains so much about, um, it's called the drift to the right, but it's really now feels like a locomotive engine to the right at the moment and, and how we, how we got into this, um, problem. And I, I love that, you know, Trump comes into your book, but he's not the star of the book, right? <laughs> Stanley Greenberg is the star of the book um, because you show the roots of, of an inability to argue against this kind of listen to the racists mode and that both left and progressive, so-called progressive, um, but left sociologists have contributed to kind of creating these categories and then they get disseminated into the world. They lose their, they lose their meaning, you know? And it's like, um, I think of class as being a tool, right? But it comes out of 19th century, like think about Darwin taxonomy, Right. And yeah. too often we see it as like a taxonomy and we figure out where we put people. But it's really supposed to be a tool of 
of opening up what are these social relations? How do we get a language to talk about this? And it seems like this language of middle class or white working class is a way of not talking about the relationships. It's just talking about these, these grievances or this particular kind of subject that I'm not even sure the subject totally exists in the way that they're being drawn. The white supremacy sure, sure does. Yeah. And maybe talking about it in those terms peels away some of those layers of mystification uh, to to some extent. I'm interested in this uh, question about uh, at the beginning of this discussion, you hinted at the idea that maybe we're seeing an end to the middle class yeah. as the default in the uh, U.S. And can you say more about this? Um, at the um, 2020 election. Uh, a labor reporter for the uh, uh, LA Times uh, predicted that we wouldn't have a, an emphasis on the middle class. And we barely sort of even had an election campaign in 2020. So it's sort of hard to know where it might have gone. But uh, the um, rationale for this was that the polls were starting to show that uh, the identification with the middle class wasn't very strong and that other people thought about themselves as poor and felt left out of that. And, and other people thought of themselves as working class and, and felt left, left out of that. So it, it's, uh, I think possible that that would happen The the way that elites talk to each other about this, uh, they're not focused on the middle class at all. Uh, city groups, planners, uh, talk about the very rich as the key to the economy mm, and, okay. and uh, uh, the federal bank, the best federal bank research mm -hmm. is out of, out of St. Louis. And they uh, their rubric would say that the middle class is like 35 percent of the of the population mm -hmm. uh, now. So I, I think we're seeing uh, over really since the early 70s uh, decline in uh, standards of life. Uh, a skewing of wealth from the middle to the top. And so that um, if you take those like the 20 percent above and the 20 percent below the median, the uh, working class share of income and, and wealth has declined so much that to say that this is um, uh, a compelling uh, way to to organize politically becomes harder and harder to do. But I also said at the beginning that I don't think we have a replacement mm -hmm. yet. So, you know, it, I think that within the two party system, there's not really a chance to talk about the working class as things are are presently uh, constituted and still yet a, a set of programmatic demands that people have been fighting for that forward trade union and working class uh, interests. So I, I think that. In 2020, my reading of it would be that by default, we kind of got Trump half-heartedly saying, uh, I have middle-class tax cuts. I had middle-class tax cuts, which he was calling middle-class tax cuts, which hardly went to the middle layers of society uh, at all. And, and mm -hmm. you had the uh, Biden uh, calling, saying at a certain point, everybody calls me middle-class Joe. And then reporters checked and nobody called him <laughs> Joe. So now he calls himself Amtrak Joe, which is, you know, maybe supposed to be ordinary person, 
middle class. But I, I, I do think that the language of middle classness is kind of breaking down in the face of these uh, cuts to the to the public sector and uh, loss of manufacturing, loss particularly of the good trade union job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And and we're getting and then, and then this idea of white working class coming in as a more salient term um, might suggest that, you know, uh, the the white supremacy that was always an engine in that term is just the gloves are coming off of that um, a little bit more. Yeah. 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 I, I You said the thing about it's kind of refreshing not to see. Trump at the center of all of these dramas. I think if there's a weakness in the book, it, uh, well, there are weaknesses in the book, but I think that one that I, I would uh, highlight is that it could do more particularly with Steve Bannon and that sort of uh, wing of the Trump uh, mm. supporters that really do regard themselves as populist white nationalists and that, um, Improbably, because of such an elite background uh, yeah. and elite personality, Tucker Carlson talks all the time about uh, working Americans mm-hmm. now and meaning white working Americans. And, you know, I, th- that could be uh, factored in a little bit more than the book does. Mm-hmm. Um we we've only touched a little bit on international issues, but I am interested in this uh, question about um, the farmers' protest in in India, and if you see that as portending any uh, big shifts in kind of U.S. hegemony, the neoliberal kind of the international neoliberal campaign that's been going on for so long. Yeah, I think that that's the the other difficult thing is that the United States has tried to give world leadership to austerity and kind of led by example. There's a thing in the in the book where if you rank the United States in terms of per capita wealth uh, as a, a mean, as an, an average, all the wealth divided by all, all the people, the United States is the richest big nation in the world, most billionaires, most multimillionaires, et cetera. If you rank by the 50th percentile, the United States is just an average nation. It's the 19th ranked nation. And it's way behind some nations that actually have social welfare and where you can, uh, you know, go to college at a, at a, and not be tremendously in debt. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, too, the United States is not a middle class mm-hmm. uh, nation. But uh, Biden has, has very much talked about what he calls a middle class foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that the United States has tried to talk about its uh, hegemony in, in the world now is to say that it knows how to build a middle class to kind of take this ideology of the middle class that's been in the United States and uh, move it on to a world stage. So, and India was a kind of a centerpiece of that. There, you could find articles from 10 years ago saying that uh, India was going to be a, a middle-class nation in 20, in 20 years, even mm-hmm. though only 4% or so have anything like a middle class uh, income uh, in India now. So I think that the farmers protests show some of the weaknesses 
of that as a strategy, if it really is a strategy or it may be more of a rhetoric than a than a strategy to raise the living standards of the world's poor to middle class. But it's something that that um, states in the global south are very attracted to. Mm -hmm. It's a way for them to talk about their own projects. But then things like the farmers protest also challenge those states. And so I think one, 20 years from now, I think we may see this as a time when uh, we should have been able to see that U.S. hegemony in the world was going to be extraordinarily short, short lived. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, creates all kinds of possibilities for a reactionary middle class populist white nationalist uh, mobilization, as well as a possibility for all kinds of left uh, projects. Mm -hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Um, well, there's another great question here um, by somebody I think that you know, and Winkler yes. Mori. Um, how do we move away from the idea of misery as personal to misery as social, needing social movements to, to solve? Thank you. This is from Ann Winkler Mori, who has a great, great new book on uh, her bicycling and uh, the state of the nation, uh, and a, and a book that that's kind of about the the personal and the political and and uh, misery in 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 different sorts of uh, of uh, of ways. Um, thanks for the question. I, I come out of for the last. 30 years, I guess I've been in the Chicago Surrealist group. I always say I'm the, the only person without uh, any artistic talent at all in the Chicago <laughs> Surrealist group. Uh, but uh, we talk, Surrealists talk about not just misery, but miserableism. And the, the term is meant to convey that uh, the system produces misery as one of its products and that the, and that we're encouraged to accept that production as a as an inevitability of the of the system, but then to process it as our own personal failing to not get out of of that misery. And so I think that to um, think about how to how to combat that is really the pressing uh, question of our time. It, it 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 has to be done, I think, through social movements, as Anne su suggests. Uh, and I I guess I think more and more coming out of COVID that it has to be done in some instances in face-to-face -face social movements. I think that a lot of the things that we're redoing coming out of COVID, re-experiencing, seem now tremendously exciting to, to do, having been starved for them. And so I, I'm wondering if there might be a kind of, we've also become very used to uh, organizing virtually and uh, having meetings like like this. But I'm wondering if we might see, uh, among other things, an uh, upturn in social movements based on getting back together face to face and seeing we've had a little union organizing drive here and really a COVID policy drive at University of Kansas. And some of the meetings that we did have in backyards and in parks and things like that, really, really electric uh, meetings. So I think that 
you know, public health has to be one of those things where we begin to think about, can we really have uh, pandemic policies that are based on individual solutions uh, and who gets left out of those of those things. So I think that this is an issue that's superposed for us now. Yeah, that actually ties really nicely to my favorite term or my favorite phrase in the book, which I want to get tattooed on my forehead. Um, You it's just part of a sentence, but you talk about the attractive power of a working class in motion. Yeah. And you're saying, and what you're saying at that point is that it's not that that in terms of thinking about radical possibilities, we shouldn't just wait for people to become more miserable, or people are going to wake up when they lose their privileges or whatever, and then they're going to identify as working class or whatever. But they're also attracted by, yeah, this attractive power of a working class in motion. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I I think about these Starbucks, the proliferation of Starbucks organizing victories. And think about if you're a, a worker at a Starbucks in a in a truck stop in the, uh, you know, very, very uh, politically unpromising part of the United States, all of a sudden you have this vision that you can be a a part of this something else. Uh, I think we're starting to see it with with Amazon uh, workers as well. So there's this and we didn't really get to talk about and I realize we're coming to the end of this, but we didn't really get to talk about uh, the radical tradition uh, and Marxism and uh, the middle class. And one of the things that I think is missed out on in, in coming to terms with this Marxist tradition of studying the middle class, which all the way from Marx had his problems in thinking about the middle class and also uh, made some contributions. But in the 20th century and right on through to your former late colleague, Eric Olin Wright at University of Wisconsin, it's really been C. Wright Mills, it's really been the Marxists who have come to terms with the middle class in some of the most uh, promising ways. But the thing that that Marx understood and that uh, Mills understood was that the what would happen to middle class consciousness wouldn't be decided just by the economy and just by misery. It would be decided by the momentum of working class movements. Mm. And so Marx hoped that the middle class in his time, which was uh, mostly people who own things, not our middle class, mostly people who are employed, uh, but that that middle class, which he pilloried and thought was the most backward layer imaginable. But he thought that given the attractive power of the 1848 revolutions and their successors, that those middle class people would find their way and partly as a result of their own falling, but also as a result of the attractiveness of working class politics and mobilization. And I think that, you know, Mills wrote a book, uh, New Men of Power, before he wrote White Collar, that right after the uh, World War II high tide of the CIO. And he thought that the middle class was going to come over en masse to create a laboristic Mm. society. After Taft-Hartley, three years later, he writes White Collar and he says, there's nothing here. There's nothing Mm. that anybody can do with this this group Mm -hmm. of people. But in all of those instances, it's not just about misery and indexes of misery. It's also about 
what we can build that makes it meaningful uh, in electoral politics, too. If there's something mm-hmm. to vote for other than putting more people in jail or, or dismantling mm-hmm. more schools, uh, that changes the, the mm-hmm. landscape a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's partly misery loves company, <laughs> just <laughs> pure and simple, right? But it's yeah. also partly, yeah, like seeing that energy of of change. Um, and I think about, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests around the uh, the movement for Black Lives around the country, and all the people who experienced, you know. And I was watching; I was obsessively watching, you know videos of Minneapolis part, part of the time. And um, there was one video that somebody was taking of a protest and somebody gave up, got up, you know, this, you know, young African-American woman gave up and gave a fiery speech. And then she's like, I'm not ready to go home. This is the first time I've been out for <laughs> weeks. <laughs> Who else is going to give a speech? No, <laughs> you know, and there was just, there's, you know, there was like, Fear and trauma and violence, you know, I mean, I I was, you know, I have a lot of people in Minneapolis. So I was hearing about the white supremacists coming in from other places and, you know, it was scary, yeah. but also, right, those kinds of mobilizations are exciting and uplifting and you, you see new possibilities for, for change. So... Yeah, and they also give us a way to think outside of the framework of electoral politics, which really does enforce this sense that uh, we can't do much. We, we're, we're destined to just repeat the, the same miseries. Uh, so I think that that's important too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw a tweet from one of our local uh, activists, um, Nada Elmugashva, um, here in Madison, and she tweeted today, BIPOC organizers have more faith in white people than the mainstream Democratic establishment. <laughs> and I just finished, you know, really immersing in your book. And it's like, that's, that's so like to view white, you know, like, Again, it's tricky to talk about, right? Because let's not uh, like minimize in any way white supremacy or the difficulty of organizing white people to really become truly anti-racist. That is <laughs> not easy. Um, but this specter now of like what what the white working class really thinks is um, it's not something that BIPOC folks are necessarily like. That's not where they're working, right? And that's yeah, I, I came into New Left Politics at kind of the moment of SNCC saying white people have a role to play in their own communities and some should yeah. go back to their own communities. And I thought about this so uh, tragically when when the Buffalo shootings happened, mm. you know, we sort of accept that as a fact of white life now. And there's really not a, a, a movement to uh, to try to intervene in white communities and intervene with young white people. I mean, there are all sorts of laudable educational mm-hmm. uh, initiatives, but to actually try to have political movements uh, yeah. in, in uh, so-called white communities that, that uh, give us a way that we could uh, we could counter the the stuff that's out there on the internet anyway. And that, that Mm -hmm. uh, becomes another uh, way for young people 
to think, but I, I don't think we have projects around that at, at all, all these years down the, down the road. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 That's just, yep. That's sobering. I think I'm a little bit running out of steam. Yeah. So, um, I think we're, I think we're, we've hit the end of our time and thank you so much for all of your wisdom and uh, your thoughts and, um, I appreciated the conversation. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Um, and Thank you so much. You're great. All right. Great to see you. Good to see Bye. You. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org. 